Hi, you're listening to the Health Disparities Podcast from Movement is Life. Conversations about health disparities with people who are looking to eliminate them. I'm Bill Finnerfrock, and today I'm discussing health disparities and health policy with Dr. Dan Wisnia, who is uh, at Yale University. Uh, he is assistant professor of orthopedics and rehabilitation and assistant professor of orthopedics and rehab uh, joint uh, reconstruction. Uh, and he also is uh, an assistant professor of mechanical engineering. Um, so you have both that uh, an engineering background as well as uh, being a physician. Um, we're here to talk about uh, health disparities and um, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, more than I've done and, and how you uh, got into this whole area of, of dealing with health disparities. Hi, uh, th- th- thank you for having me. Um, I uh, am a total joint replacement surgeon, so I treat uh, patients who have uh, end-stage arthritis, um, and I focus on uh, hip arthritis and knee arthritis. Uh, so in terms of how I became engaged in healthcare disparities, it was uh, when I was a resident and we had a resident uh, arthritis clinic and we would be really the only resource uh, in the New Haven, uh, Connecticut community where these patients uh, who had Medicaid insurance or did not have any insurance could go to uh, seek care. And it was very, very surprising to me just how large a demand there was for our clinic. I engaged in a study looking at uh, total joint replacement access. Given that the Affordable Care Act had just come into effect in two thousand. 14, I conducted a study across the nation looking at how patients' access varied in terms of being able to obtain appointments to see orthopedic surgeons to have total joint replacement. And it was very eye-opening to me the how access for someone with Medicaid was such a struggle to be seen, while access for someone with uh, private insurance, they were able to obtain an appointment very easily. I've, I've heard about uh, that study. I've, I think it's um, what's sometimes described as a secret shopper uh, study. Um, can you elaborate on that a little, a little bit of how, how, do you, how are you able to um, make the determination that the provider was making a distinction in, in treating or deciding to treat uh, based on whether they were Medicaid, uninsured, or commercially insured? How does that work? So the secret shopper concept it really, its premise uh, is it, a little deceiving. You uh, call an office acting as though you're a patient, and you uh, try to see if you can obtain an appointment. And during the conversation, uh, following a script, you um, are able to also record other variables and factors that may affect your access to to, uh, obtain an appointment. So for example, for this study where we were exploring whether patients who had arthritis, whether they could be evaluated for potentially a total joint replacement, we would call, uh, tell them that uh, we 
were told by our, their, our primary care doctor that we needed a, a total joint replacement, that we had end-stage arthritis. Uh, we would tell the office that we either had private uh, insurance, uh, Medicare, or Medicaid, and then we would ask if we could schedule an appointment. And the office would then either say, yes, we can schedule an appointment, or they would say, no, uh, we don't accept your insurance. And then they would give us an actual date for the appointment. And this was important because we actually were trying to see if patients with Medicaid insurance were going to have longer wait times, uh, more days between the request for an appointment and the actual appointment. And then the office would also uh, tell us what sort of requirements they had in terms of office notes from our primary care doctor or x-rays. And at the end of the call, we would always cancel the appointment so we wouldn't be taking a, a, a needed spot. Uh, but what we would learn is uh, from the study was that Medicaid patients, their wait times were a, a bit longer to be seen. So, so let me see if I understand it. So a, a person would call up the, the medical practice, uh, describe the medical condition the, that they had been referred, uh, and say, I was, they, they were on Medicaid. And the practice would say, uh, that's great. You know, uh, we can schedule you for an appointment in two weeks. Correct. And then uh, an hour later, another person calls up with the same medical problem uh, and uh, description. All the, the relevant information was very similar. And the practice would say, oh, great, we can see you tomorrow. Exactly. So you're concluding from that the Medicaid, they're putting them off versus the commercially insured individual is able to get in right away. Is that kind of the... So, so, uh- that was one major thing that there was a big there was a delay. Wow! But the other big finding was that it was just the so there was an, a very low percentage of offices that would even see Medicaid patients in the first place. So, so they the Medicaid patient might be told, "I'm sorry, we don't have any time slots for you." But again, the commercially insured patient would call up, and they'd be, "Oh yeah, we can, you know, we can see, we can schedule you." Uh, so it was even that uh, disparate where we won't even see. They wouldn't tell them we won't see you because you're on Medicaid oh, necessarily. No, they they, they were would, honest uh, yeah, about they it. They would say, "We don't accept Medicaid." Wow. Uh, and we would have a follow up question: Well, do you know who might accept Medicaid? Mm-hmm. And um, some offices would forward us to uh, an academic practice or a state institution or city institution. Uh, Some couldn't. Um, But then just the requirements that uh, they placed on these Medicaid patients was a lot higher. Um, A lot of them required a a referral from the primary care doctor. And a lot of them required uh, the last note from the primary care doctor and x-rays. And for someone with limited means, coordinating all of those extra barriers to care is can be challenging. If you don't have a fax access to a fax machine, if you don't have a phone, uh, to be able to arrange for your primary care to send all those documents over. So these and, are, and those same requests weren't made of an individual who had commercial exactly. insurance. 
Someone who had commercial insurance uh, didn't have to bring any of that. Wow, fascinating. And where, where if somebody wanted to uh, gain access or, or look at your, your study, uh, where could they find it? Uh, this study was published in the Journal of Arthroplasty. Okay. All right. So if you can Google the Journal of Arthroplasty and uh, just guess, just put in your name, yeah, uh, and then it'll Daniel it'll yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll come, come up. up. That's yeah. fascinating. So one of the things that uh, we've been talking with folks about is uh, how they're changing some of the payment models. That you know, right now as a surgeon, you're paid basically on what's called a fee for service uh, basis. You you do a surgery, you get paid for for what you're doing. But they're moving to more of what now are called bundled payments. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, what does a bundled payment mean uh, first? And then we'll kind of maybe talk a little bit more about that and what the implications are. So the uh, whole concept behind the bundled payment is to try to have one sort of central fiscal manager of the care. So, Which doesn't seem like a bad idea. No. Because then at least someone is control of how the care is being administered. So in most cases, it's a hospital, and the hospital will be given a lump sum, and from that lump sum, it has to cover the um, the surgeon's fee, has to cover the cost of doing the surgery. So that's the admission, the operating room time, the implants. Uh, the medical device implant costs, um, all the nursing care that the patient receives, the medication, and then subsequently also included in that um, would be therapy after the surgery and any care up to 90 days after the surgery. So the bundled payment has really placed the hospital system sort of at the forefront of trying to coordinate all of those services and costs, and they're incentivized because whatever isn't spent, uh, they get to keep. Mm-hmm. So so why is that a, a bad uh, thing, or what are some of the, the potential dangers maybe of that type of a, of a payment model? The major concern is that you're going to have institutions that will cherry pick patients who are healthier and who are um, perhaps less of a surgical risk and um, you won't uh, allow care uh, or you'll make it challenging for patients who perhaps don't um, meet those criteria. So what would be, can you give an example of what, what a patient of, of greater surgical risk uh, might, might look like uh, compared to someone who is less of a surgical risk? So for example, um, the average patient who's uh, having a total joint replacement is around the age of 70. If you have a patient um, who is uh, obese or has diabetes, they have a higher risk for a complication after the surgery. Now, a hospital, if they're just being paid this lump sum, they don't want to be also beset with the expenses of uh, that patient being readmitted with an infection and being readmitted and perhaps needing another surgery. If that occurs within the 90-day period, 
that comes out of their bundled payment. So the hospital is accepting sort of that risk of that potentially happening. So there's an incentive to try to only operate on the healthiest patients so you don't have those complications. So um, that's not an uncommon uh, occurrence. I've seen that with regard to, for example, insurance companies uh, have long argued and been successful at getting uh, risk-adjusted payments that if they... Um, have a disproportionately high percentage of individuals choose a particular health plan, the system has a mechanism to adjust for that and say, okay, you're going to have sicker patients, we'll pay you a little bit more. Um, So are you saying that these bundle payments um, don't do the same thing uh, for the provider, the hospital, the doctor, and make those same kind of risk adjustments? That, that, that's correct. So the way that Medicare has set up these bundled payments right now is uh, it does not make those risk adjustments. And so what's happening is, you know, you'll have patients who are higher uh, risk for surgery. A lot of these patients are within these underserved populations um, who have um, less healthcare knowledge and resources and financially have faced a lot of challenges in terms of optimizing themselves for surgery. And these patients tend to be, from those backgrounds, tend to not be as healthy. So by instituting this bundled payment system, you may actually be disadvantaging uh these patients and creating healthcare disparities. So the, but the things that you just talked about, um, socioeconomic status, the neighborhood, uh, the environment in which an individual comes from, um, those aren't medical conditions. You know, it's easy to identify and say, okay, we know you have diabetes, we know you have hypertension, but these other factors uh, that I think are sometimes referred to as social uh, determinants of health. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And I think it, it somewhat ties back to your your Medicaid um, example and research of how social determinants of health um, affect potentially the, the desirability of a physician or a hospital to see a particular pa- patient and, and why that's important? So patients um, who ha- come from these disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, they tend to be uh, not as healthy. And part of that is based on the neighborhoods and the communities, uh, and they don't have the resources that... Um, <clears throat> that wealthier communities have. For example, we're looking at a study right now where we're finding that most of these health centers are located in wealthy neighborhoods, uh, and the health centers aren't located in these more indigent communities. So these patients who don't have the financial wherewithal to uh, be able to travel outside of their neighborhoods um, are really stuck sort of in a healthcare desert in some sense. And then because of this, they develop these um, more complex health conditions. So what you're ultimately doing is you're, you're creating this vicious, uh, vicious cycle where these uh, social determinants 
are actually leading to these healthcare disparities? Well, I, I was talking with a doctor recently, and it was an interesting example of that. I think she had a uh, it wasn't a patient, but it was a friend of hers who uh, was dealing with some weight and and you know weight issues. And she said, "Well, you know, one of the simple things you can do is just walk. You know, like every night, um, go out and and walk a mile or you know whatever you can do and and add to it." And the individual said, uh, "Doctor, you don't understand. You don't walk in my neighborhood." You know, that because of crime, because of, uh, you know, drugs and other things of where she happened to live, the notion of just going out and walking uh, wasn't a realistic uh, option. And so that, in essence, contributed to her ultimate need for uh, surgery because she wasn't able to do some of the things that many of us might think of as just routine activities uh, to be able to combat uh, what what she was experiencing in terms of her weight gain. Are those the kind of things you're talking about? Um, Exactly. So these patients, they don't have access to healthy eating choices. They don't have access to... um, grocery stores that have uh, produce so that they can have uh, meals with plenty of fruits and vegetables in their diet that places them at increased risk of gaining weight. They don't have safe places uh, to be physically active. That places them at increased risk of gaining weight. Extra weight places extra forces through the joints. Um, For every extra pound that you have, the knee actually feels five pounds. So if you're 20 pounds overweight, the knee is actually experiencing 100 extra pounds of force. And that extra force creates damage to the cartilage. So um, cartilage is the surface that lines the ends of the bones that allows uh, the bones to glide against each other. You'll see that at the end of uh, chicken bones, that white glistening substance, that's cartilage. And it's um, a very delicate tissue. Um, And it can't really withstand those extra forces. And over time, it gets worn down and uh, decays. So weight is is an enormous challenge uh, for these patients. And the weight places them at risk for, unfortunately, this disability. So... Is there anything we can do to kind of maybe adjust uh, the bundled payment? Um, my my sense in talking with folks is that that the physicians and and hospitals don't necessarily mind being held accountable uh, for the things that you can control, but it's when you are suddenly being uh, basically held accountable for things that are outside your control. So are there things that we could do in how we design um, these models, these bundle payments to say, okay, we're, we, we accept that bundle payment is, is, a, is not a bad policy, but we need to do any thoughts or ideas on what we might be able to do to try and prevent the kinds of things, cherry picking you mentioned, uh, from happening? So I think one um, thing that would really help is if Medicaid was more universally accepted and... Currently, uh, depending on the state that you're in, your the Medicaid reimbursements rates vary a little bit, but overall they're significantly um, lower than uh, Medicare uh, reimbursement rates, and those patients really struggle to gain access uh, to care because of this, and 
if those patients had access to care, a lot of these medical comorbidities might actually uh, be improved. Um, second, the bundled payment system that Medicare has really does need to take into account these additional uh, risk factors because it is, in some sense, creating a bias in terms of which patients are going to uh, be treated. So there are the social risk factors and the medical risk factors uh, both need to, to, to do that. And uh, I know there's um, been some effort to look at, you know, can we build those into the models at the front end rather than waiting uh, and looking at the results and going, gee, you know, we've got a problem here. Uh, maybe we can do a better job in how we design those models. Is that uh, kind of the, 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 the part of the message here? I think that's part of it. I think we also have to look at uh, which institutions are really being very aggressive in terms of their patient selection and examine how they're making those decisions and whether those decisions are being made uh, based off of the patient's medical comorbidities or if there's actually other uh, factors that are being that may be influencing whether these patients are ultimately treated. Yeah, I mean, it 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 seems to me as you're talking that one of the one of the concerns you'd have is, you know, a hospital or surgeon who is doing that kind of cherry picking is going to come out and have great scores. Oh, look what a great institution we are! Look at what a great surgeon I have. You know, great quality scores, without recognizing that. Well, part of the reason for that is that you're self-selecting the patients and you're dealing with the healthier community. And, and meanwhile, what's not showing up in the quality scores is the whole community that's not even getting care. So, so let, let me give you an example. Uh, in New Haven, we have a uh, nonprofit hospital and we have a uh, hospital that's a, a private hospital. And the nonprofit hospital... Uh, the physicians that operate there will accept patients with all types of insurance, including Medicaid and even uh, free care. At this private hospital, they'll only see patients who have uh, insurance and will actually won't see patients with Medicare with Medicaid. So, at this uh, nonprofit hospital, the patient population is very different uh, because you have a lot of indigent uh, patients. Um, and that puts a lot of, um, and that does affect the, the complexity of the cases and the ultimate outcomes of those cases. Uh, while at this private hospital, they, they have these sort of barriers to care, and they're able to just select the, uh, the healthiest patients. And if they have patients that are more complex, they frequently will refer the patient to the nonprofit hospital. So they, they have, have this set up in their institution so that if you aren't a straightforward, simple case, we're going to send you to this nonprofit hospital. And this is a hospital that is underfunded, is trying to do the best it can to serve a population, which it is being reimbursed less for, but that is medically more complex and socially more complex. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it just, you can easily see where uh, it becomes, uh, it really deteriorates over time, either from a financial perspective, the public hospital uh, makes it harder and harder to exist financially. And then the public perception, when the government comes out, for example, and says, oh, we're going to give you our star ratings, and Hospital A, who's the private hospital, gets a five-star rating, and Hospital B gets a three-star rating, the impression in the community is, oh, well, you know, if you want to get good care, go to the five-star hospital, not the three-star hospital. And it and it yeah. even causes greater self-segregation, if you will, uh, because now the insured population says, well, okay, I have the choice. Right. But I'm going to go to the five star, so you have it. it, it even, that even exacerbates itself. But but the reality is, you probably do get better care at the three star hospital because this is where the most complex cases are being done, and this is where the specialists who really can take on those cases are, where the folks who are doing all the simple cases. You know, they're at the five-star hospital. Yeah, there was a, it, it's outside the, the space you're in in orthopedics, but a few years ago when they started to do this with hospitals, um, they found that some of the leading cancer hospitals um, got low ratings because they had a high uh, mortality rate. You know, a lot of patients died. And they looked at other hospitals and they said, oh, look, you know, their cancer mortality rate is much, much lower. But uh, when they went in and looked, they said, well, wait a minute, you know, they're the, the cancer hospitals that have, the, they're dealing with the, the most challenging cases and they're actually the best place to go to. But the way you're measuring it and the way you're reporting it makes it appear that, that they're uh, you know not as good and and I think that's the same thing you're saying here that that these the 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 hospital with the lower rating may actually be a better hospital because they're dealing with those more challenging cases but it's just not showing up because of how we've structured the the rating process exactly exactly and unfortunately those star ratings create a perception that the hospital is of poor quality when in fact it may actually be uh, even better given the the expertise of the specialists there who are taking on those cases well dr wisnia uh we really appreciate you taking some time to to talk with us today this has been fascinating uh i wish you great luck i look forward to some of the additional research and analysis you're going to do in this space and uh just really want to encourage you to to stick with it it really helps uh from the public policy standpoint to have that kind of analysis to help educate uh people who are making those decisions that that there's some things out there some problems that they may not be aware of so appreciate everything you're doing and and look forward to working with you moving forward. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me and shining a light on this. I greatly appreciate it.